everybody to the Therapeutic Blueprint podcast. This is season two, episode one. My name is Hannah and on the panel we have also got Ian, editor-in-chief, and Stu, or producer Stu. Say hi guys. Hiya. Hey, and tonight we have our first guest of the podcast. Round of applause, please. <laughs> Tonight, we do have a guest, and our guest is Tim. Um, Tim is working as a team leader. He's been doing this for 13 years, and he also works for one of the London universities as an associate lecturer in paramedic science. Have I got that right? You do. Uh, Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Absolute delightful. And it's lovely to have you. So, I think... Look, let's start this off. This, the whole podcast we do is about children's homes and children's social care. So I think the first question best to ask you, Tim, is what do you know about children's homes from your own professional experience? So obviously, sort of paramedics tend to be sort of, a, we class ourselves as a jack of all trades. So we, we go anywhere out into the community. And obviously, um, in the community, we have children's homes. It's it's not um, a place where we go very often, but when we do, it often to be sort of when people are in real crisis, children are in crisis, have overdoses and things. So we tend to be, we go to uh, places, but um, children's homes not very often, but often we go to quite serious cases in there or serious mental health crisis, um, things like that. So that's interesting, actually, that you said that, because so you, essentially from your experience, you've gone to children's homes, but when they're in absolute crisis, because sometimes certainly for me um, in you tell me what you think from your end of things. But sometimes I've wondered if paramedics are called too regularly um, and for not um what's the word not good enough reasons that's not what i mean but reasons why i don't know if if we would necessarily always call 994 ian what's your experience from my own personal experiences the only times i've ever called an ambulance and it's only actually been maybe two times maximum definitely i've 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 uh, asked someone else to make the call once um, on, on an occasion I can think of in particular, but that was a, at the point where somebody was very, very distressed and an absolute, and absolutely were in crisis. I think, um, you know, having relatives myself in in the the sort of uh, medical the local arena. sort of healthcare trust, yeah, by by myself, I'm always very conscious of of uh, how stretched resources are. So uh, for me, it would always be an, an absolute last resort, but. I could see how other people could potentially use them as a first port of call or or call far sooner for support. Yeah. Um but but for me you know always taking a relational approach I'd always try to um provide the support with the with the staff around the child first who know the child best and to provide that familiarity as well because actually sometimes calling in other professionals can increase the distress. Mm-hmm. massively can't it so it's making that judgment call sometimes so yeah I, I've not personally seen it misused however I can imagine like any any service there's massive potential for for misuse yeah you've just made 
you you just made me think actually because I'm now I'm going to my own experience and I've got to admit I just thought I've never actually called for a paramedic which is really interesting now I don't know if that's because like you I'm conscious that paramedics are um, crucial and vital and they are have a lot of work to do because it, just from thinking from the cases I work with we take them to hospital. I'm not necessarily now, I'm now thinking, should we have maybe called 99 before? But actually, from my personal experience, we've always gone to the hospital and taken them ourselves. What about you, Stu? What's your experience? I can only recall one occasion where we was advised to contact um, 999 and that was um, following somebody making a threat to, to harm themselves. But that was the only time I, I really, really remember um, and I think that that's that's the question, really. I suppose that it, it it raises in me is when should we call and when shouldn't we call? And yes, you're right. You know, um, you know, if if we had a a, a, a child um, living with us and they needed to get to the hospital, you know, we would more often than not pop them in the car and get get ourselves down to A and E. You know, but we are talking about you know, you know, a sprained ankle or you know a. A suspected broken arm because we try to be quicker but so so when should we and when shouldn't we call really yeah well, well you've just made me think though because for me it wasn't actually the sprained ankles why I, I mean yes that has happened over time but it's, it was also the overdoses like if we weren't sure or if we were suspicious of a child taking a medication overdose we have certainly rang up 101 for advice, but we would take them down to the hospital. Like, Tim, what, what's your thoughts on that? Should we be calling 999 and getting the ambulance there? So my thoughts, first of all, 111, I'll just put out there, 101, you'll get the police. <laughs> but I'll just... <laughs> which, but... Uh, that, that, Thank just you. Because, just because we don't want... <laughs> Thanks for just, clarifying. Just because, yeah, just because we, uh, we probably shouldn't have the police although actually sometimes the police do need to come to to cause especially in severe mental health crisis which we could discuss later but going back to your question i think for if, if a child or anybody's taking a sort of an overdose obviously they need to be taken to hospital um if you can manage that child and you have their trust and they are willing to go with you then to putting them there's nothing wrong with yourselves taking that child down to the hospital because you'll get triaged at the front reception the yeah. appropriate triage will take place um and they will get medical attention so if they're a slightly sort of a, a, a really big overdose where there's a risk you know of them becoming unconscious or they're not compliant with, with yourselves yeah and you know you physically cannot get them in the car or it's not safe to um, for overdose, that's when we should be getting involved. But there's nothing wrong with yourselves as they're sort of assuming that you're their guardians, putting them in a car and taking them to hospital if they absolutely happily do that for you because they're still got the care at the hospital. The ambulance service do c- carry um, some sort of, uh, some drugs. Uh, we carry Narcan if it's sort of an opioid overdose, but other right. sorts of dr- any sort of else we don't carry uh, um, any sort of antidotes for. Right. So we wouldn't be able to we wouldn't be able to give any medication to help. We would take them down to the hospital, and as a child, sort of who's in the care system, we would always take them to hospital with your agreement, and we'd almost be guided by yourselves about your protocols as well. But for ourselves as a healthcare professional, we would want them to go to hospital um, or feed into their sort of mental health team as well. Um, but hospital for an overdose is normally the standard 
Um, yeah. In terms of other things, sort of minor injuries, absolutely the same. If you can take them yourselves, you can. Always think of the bigger injuries, just call us because we do have um, referral pathways for bigger injuries, which can bypass the local hospitals. Um, but yeah, in terms of sort of and severe mental health crises, I think I, know, I think that's um, talking to colleagues. There've been a couple um, where they've been com complete in distress, almost acute behavioural disturbances in child children. Yeah, um, yeah. that's when we really come in. We would come into our own in terms of alongside the police. Um, there are specialist paramedics who do carry some other drugs to help sedate, but that's in the only extreme. So it's outside my scope of practice, and ninety nine point nine percent. The scope practice of paramedics because it's such an extreme chemical sedation is something we don't like doing pre-hospitally yeah and do you and do you see much of that actually with children like in general um no but luckily no i think there's been there are occasions um but no i and i could think of two in my career both were actually in the children's home but it was in a specific children's home which for autistic children right okay yeah um, and they and they then they were yeah. new to the home as well um, and they, that was a long, long time ago before we had a lot more processes we have in now, sort of such a paramedics who carry sedation and stuff. So um, they were managed with myself, the staff and the police as well. That makes it. And actually, okay. it brings me on to Ian a little bit and I'll come back to you, Stu, because I can hear you as well. Yeah. But Ian, what I was thinking... Um, Tim touched on a good point there with learning disabilities and um, my brain straight away goes with how typically children with severe learning disabilities we're talking about have um, uh, comorbid, comorbid diagnoses meaning more than one diagnosis of some kind and a lot of those can be um, medical can't they and I know you've got a lot of experience with that yourself Ian. Yeah, and, and I'd say absolutely, yeah. But where conditions like epilepsy is concerned, which is a lot more common um, in people with a, a severe learning disability, yeah. and, it, and it also is more more common with conditions like autism, um, we'd always have to follow that child's individual epilepsy protocol yeah. as well, especially if we're administering yeah. things like Bukum or Dazalam. There'd already be a plan in place at what point we administer and calling an ambulance, especially after the the very first time it's been administered. So um, certain things, we're governed by protocols, aren't we? And we should always have, and we would have those things in place anyway if someone was prescribed Bukamidazolam, but it's always thinking about the what-ifs before, isn't it, rather than waiting till we get that stage and then we, we'd be more reactive and people are, are unsure what to do sometimes, aren't they? And and things are more based on discretion then rather than a clear protocol. Yeah. Because in a large staff team, there's massive scope for interpretation. Yeah, which is dangerous, <laughs> Cause yeah. isn't it? That's why we have policies and procedures and protocols, like you said, in children's home, because otherwise thing, other people's opinions and feelings and emotion can very much get involved, especially when it's children um, and I think that's really important to say. Stu, I know you wanted to say something. Shall we come back to you? Yeah, no, thank you, because I would have taken us on a, a bit of a turn. I, w I wanted to ask if we know that there's been a rise in, in mental health um, issues or concerns for, for children and young people following COVID-19. I just wanted to ask, is this something that we've seen rise since 2020, would we say? Would that be a fair assumption or not? Tim, I think that one's to you. Yeah, I think we haven't hit anywhere near the tip of the iceberg of knowing what COVID-19 has done for us. Um, 
I think I've seen personally from my practice I've seen an increase in critically unwell children recently Um, you know and we're seeing sort of strep A in the hospitals because their immune systems are lower and obviously that will impact yes I think that there was obviously a lack of um, social services being able to go into children's homes so I think we're probably it is something we're probably going to start seeing in the we're guessing but I think we will start seeing that absolutely we're going to start seeing an increase in mental health I know mental health of adults is getting worse probably because of it so I absolutely think it's going to be an increase Um, families were locked up together weren't they for a year year and a half without being able to get support yeah well probably the only support who would come out were the ambulance service in a lot of cases and people didn't call weren't calling us for that sort of thing so um i think it is going we haven't got anywhere near to the tip of what's going to happen with that hopefully it doesn't touch wood yeah or sort of plateaus off but i think it is a, a real potential Have you found it's been a gradual rise, Tim, anyway, in recent years? Because I think um, COVID aside, you know, the internet and social media has had a lot to yeah. contribute to the increase in, in mental illness in children and adults. Uh, yeah, I think absolutely. Mental, mental illness is becoming a large part of what we do and what the police do as well nowadays. Yes. I will bring them into this because we, we work hand in hand in partnership with them, but they do a fantastic job. Yeah, um, I think it's it's been ever increasing reasons but i think we've got a younger population who are more willing to sort of talk about it now mm. i think probably our generation i'm sort of, i'm 40 sort of almost broke the barrier with it which has opened up the floodgates for the, those behind us coming along in their age to be able to talk about it and well-being you know campaigns are you okay such like this have, have been running now and it's people are realize and it's been become especially in the ambulance service it's a lot more accepted now um, like it's as a, as a sort of a, who works with um, staff, um, we're much, we, we haven't got it perfect yet. We, we, we need to get better, but we always need to work and get better. But I think it's, there's, it's definitely um, growing. Uh, but maybe because of awareness as well, people bottling it up inside for years mm. and years when they didn't know where to go, had no support. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, so I've got a question for you. So my thought is, as because you're also a lecturer in paramedic science, has there been, and I know you know, can only do it in the timescale that you've been doing it, but has there been a change in the teaching around paramedic science? And what I mean by that, is there more of a focus on mental health these days? Is it a balance or has there always been or are you seeing this evolve a little bit? I think it, paramedic, paramedic, paramedicine and paramedic science has evolved over the last few years anyway into the fact that it never used to be a degree. You didn't have to have a degree to be a paramedic. So we've now standardized it across the board, which is brilliant. So we now know that it's, it needs to be a university-led education. Yeah. Um, we've brought in mental health teams to work with us. So we have lot, most trusts now will have mental health nurses and mental health trusts work alongside service, and that then goes into education as well yeah you can call on sort of spe- specialists either in, inside the university or from the trust to come in and support the students and support us i know when i started um it was this is a disorder this is what happens yeah like now you can now you can work alongside and learn from the professionals you know you were taught by paramedics and we we have evolved from that so you can now learn from mental health professionals probably we could even arrange for placements in some places as well so that you can go and work alongside teams 
um, to see how what the get an idea of what a mental health team does because we know they're as short-staffed and overworked as, every, as the rest of the sort of healthcare system and social care system. But yes, it has definitely evolved and is improved for the better and is still getting better. It's interesting because my brain then goes, can they come into children's homes? Which leads me on to my question really is during the discussions of the children and the adults that you work with, is there much discussion in general around children in residential care? Do people know no. about... No, there's not. What about um, foster care, adoption, social care? No, very little. Very, we, very little. And that's, as I think I said earlier, with Paramates are a jack of all traits. We're used to being out in the community, so we're used to adapting to situations mm. we don't really know a huge amount about. Yeah. And 90% of my job is communication. I know what we all see on TV or and like watch, the, but actually 90%, probably even more, is just talk, working out walking into a situation where unfamiliar is and sort of managing or supporting the people there to manage something. Yeah. So um, it is children's homes and um, children in care is something that we don't know a huge amount about. Right. But, so if, if say, if I was to come into a home which you'd been in, I would be very much looking at you to guide me yeah. about plans, how to act around the child, because I would see myself for a child in a home as sort of, they see me in uniform, yeah they see me as sort that's a barrier yeah. initially yeah so you yeah. know how to break how do i break down the barriers with the child um you know i'm person of authority to them yeah you know color of the uniform as well depending on what country you're in green actually isn't a kind color in some countries because you think about military we have that with our adults so i wonder if that applies to some children yeah from other cultures so there's a lot of barriers especially for children for ambulance service because we are these I mean, I'm six foot two, so I walk in to a child who's eight years old as a someone with wearing sort of a, a uniform, um, and I've turned up with blue flashy lights, and that can be really scary. Yeah. So that's when we have to sort of work alongside each other as professionals, and you would have to guide me as well. That's interesting. I, yeah, very. I'm because I don't know about you, Stu, and you, Ian, but my brain goes to me. I, if I had a paramedic coming into my home, I would go. I'll be led by you versus the other way around. Whereas actually, you're absolutely well. It, it's together. It's a partnership of working how it always should be. But I think about now where my brain's going, and Stu, you tell me where your brain's going, and Ian after. I'm thinking. Well, we have, um, you know, the police come into the children's home, and we get them sometimes to do talks or the neighbourhood watch and all these kind of things. I have never in my 17 years had a paramedic come into the home unless it was for an emergency. Um, but I've never had a paramedic come in and have a conversation with my children and put them at ease. Um, right, I'll go with you, Stu, first. What are your thoughts? Are you thinking what I'm thinking? <laughs> I um, Yeah, I think also in the build-up to whatever is the need for a paramedic to be in let's not forget we we are we are staff or we are we are working the situation but we're also you know impacted by that so i think sometimes when we find that 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 external professional arrives if it's a paramedic or police officer as suggested 
we often see it as an opportunity for us to breathe a little and yeah. it's actually the time when we probably need to work harder yeah. so I think that's where for me I would be considering not only just bringing in paramedics to to have a discussion with our children but also you know to have a discussion with my team you know via a team meeting and developing some kind of you know workshop around this to you know to explore what we would need to do because I know in that scenario I would see that as my chance to to breathe a little bit and to take a rest and or take a moment not even you know, not that I would leave or anything like that but just to kind of you know that kind of thing I'll come in there because I will say while I'm saying I'll look at you to support you'd me turning up smiling putting my bags down and saying hello will give you that breath because I see yeah. it every day I go to this, some very serious things and you can guarantee just by walking into the room the probably the person who's trying to control it will always automatically relax and take a breath just because I'm there and yeah. it could be yeah. half a second um yeah. and, and I will be like just scanning what's going on and then I'll do the initial bit and then I'll bring you, we would bring you into it. So you would, yeah, yeah. Cause then it's absolutely collaborative working, especially in complex cases with children. Yeah. yeah. Probably there's some of the most scary cases I have, but not because I think they're really unwell, which they are really unwell, but because um, it's my lack of understanding and knowledge on it. Mm-hmm. Where I'm like, yeah. And it's child, it's a child. So it's a motive. The, the thing <laughs> is, my brain's yeah. going with this, Tim, is to be fair to you, you're knowledgeable, you're experienced, you're at management level, you'll think like this. You're, I'm assuming, and you tell me that there has to be reflective um, practice, exactly like we have to have reflective practice. You also have to have it as a paramedic um, and with your team as well to be able to think, whereas other people might not, especially if you're new to your career. Like I know what it was like as a support worker who's brand new. They're not necessarily going to think how uh, any of us have been doing because all the four of us have been doing this for a long time in our in our own industries. So we know that sometimes we just need to slow down where others don't. Because you coming into the home, you're, I, I, my, the first what I thought of is your reassurance your reassurance for whoever that other person is and I can go from just from myself as a manager when I've walked in like the staff I can see them just breathe sometimes because you're just that authoritative figure aren't you now you can take charge of it but I I would also want to bring you in here Ian and what are your thoughts about this um because you love medication side of things and you're very good at it as well and you train it yourself. So where's your brain going, like listening to what Tim's saying, Ian? Um, My first first thoughts around it uh, straight away were actually when people are calling for support, i.e. an ambulance during times of crisis, um, not necessarily for the, the, the... the health concerns at that moment in time, but just to to look for an answer sometimes. And, you know, when we talk about how, how people can call things for other reasons sometimes. And I suppose when, when we're calling for other services, whether it's the ambulance and or the police during times of crisis, we're, we're at that point, we're starting to externalise, aren't we? We're looking, you know, we've engaged an external locus of control, if, if you want to look at it that way. We're looking for somebody outside to come and resolve the situation. Yeah. Aren't we, if that, that makes sense, what I'm getting at there. So, yeah, initially when that person walks in, we, we do breathe that sigh of relief because sometimes we're expecting that person to, to have all the answers. Yeah. Which isn't always the case, is it? And it's not always um, a fair expectation 
on anyone's part. No, no. Um, but yeah, sometimes you know, when we're in crisis, we we get that tunnel vision and and we're looking for an answer. And I think sometimes, you know, as I said, I haven't seen people misuse services such as phoning the paramedics. However, I'm definitely aware of services, and I've come across them where they've misused calling the police. And yeah. at that moment in time, they feel they've lost control, so they're looking for that external rescuer sometimes to come in with all the answers and and provide that that resolution and um that was very interesting what you said there tim about the, the green and and associating that with military and i and i can definitely see that in some parts of the world um where that that really could you know with some of the the very diverse uh, children that we do get coming to our services how how that could massively trigger them um i've also seen how the blue flashing lights have triggered PTSD flashbacks in the past where that ambulance might not have come for that child, but it's come for another child in the home. And mm. then actually it's 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 created that that fear response, if you like, in them. So, um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting uh, what, yeah. what you've talked about there. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think as well, from my personal point of view, is where actually where I probably see more of these these, these poor children is um, where I'm actually at the start of their trauma journey, whether it's yeah, been the death of yeah. their parent, um, where they've had the complete crisis where I've had to take them to hospital or deal with them with the police. So I can be associated with that. I'm always very wary with, about that. It's like when you meet people, it's like actually where the last interaction they had with the paramedic was that paramedic um, telling them that a loved one had died or they being in the room when telling another adult that a loved one has died. I can yeah. think yeah. that's happened a few times and I can think at a couple of times where like another sibling's passed away and children can shrink into the background a little bit in these situations, but you, they are, you forget they're absolutely listening. Yeah. And that's, yeah. you know, they're taking absolutely everything in. So we, we have, I, I'm, I'm acutely aware of that as well. And that's for all patients, but especially for children, I think. And then these children who've had the traumas end up with, in your care a lot of the time, I'd imagine as well, when they've lost parents, sort of things like that. Yeah, because so, my yeah. brain actually goes... So we've got the the losing of someone bereavement, but my also brain goes with you're there when the mum might have been assaulted by the father and injured and then the child has to be taken because then we've got abuse in the household. So it was interesting what you said about the beginning of their trauma um, histories and we're kind of getting them later on when the impact's coming yeah. out of the trauma and how I just now my brain's going with, wow, I've never done any work around with any child around this with with paramedics and children being triggered absolutely i have with police and that's quite common you said it yourself in and i think it's been overcalled um many times the police overuse in children's homes for sure and it and i think my assumption actually i'm glad you've like put me straight on it tim because my assumption is that we overcalled on the paramedics I don't know where I actually got that from because we've all just shared that we hardly have ever called. Yeah. Like, I've never called. I've definitely been on shift when someone else has called and that we made a joint decision to make that call. But I personally have never. Ian, you've done it, I think you said once. Do you? I think you've done it once yeah. or maybe once or twice. Well, you know, all of us have got at least 50 years experience between us. So that's not many times of us calling. So, and Tim, you said yourself, you haven't been there that many times. 
um, you've only been there in real crisis, which then makes me think, are we not calling the paramedics soon enough? Or is it that we actually don't need to? Because like we talked about, we all said we've handled the situation ourselves because the one thing we all have in children's homes and we know that we have to be first aid trained and all of us are paediatric trained in first aid. So like we kind of handle situations, manage it and then go and take them to wherever they need to go. But my question I suppose to you, Tim, is... When you said you've had them at the most extreme in the ma- in the major crisis, is that self harm such as suicide attempts, major overdoses? Is it things like psychosis when they've got very they're very mentally ill and it's taking them over essentially, and they need medical intervention, or is it accidents? Like what what kind of out of the times that you have been and speaking to your colleagues, what are the reasonings behind it? Um, I think that psychosis is, is one, an extreme mental health crisis where it's yeah. just people have become completely unmanageable. Um, and there have been sort of the more physical overdoses yeah. sort of with, with sort of the things that stop, make people unconscious or their breathing go down. Very few accidents. Right. Very, very few. I can't actually, when I say very few, I'm actually going to say I can't think of one, Yeah. to be honest with you. And actually, I'd forgotten you brought up epilepsy. Epilepsy is another one which you've gone through the plan and you've got to the point where bucomidazolam or something like that doesn't work and then we get called. Yeah. Um, because yeah. obviously then that, that's, that, that is a complete medical emergency then. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I can think of one case of diabetes. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, you've just jogged my mind. That was actually a case where we did call the paramedics because she was self-harming with her insulin and she hadn't taken it and she got really ill. So you've just yeah. reminded me, actually, that was a time where we've had it. And, you know, it's like things like epilepsy, you know, that they might be the common, as you say, I didn't with uh, children with autism and learning difficulties, but we also could get called just to normal medical emergencies which children have, right. like high temperatures, sepsis, things yeah, like that. Yeah. I've been to one of those. Children get ill, yeah, you know, and they yeah. get very unwell very quickly. So yeah, we talk yeah. about all these severe crises and thinking like, oh, actually, it's linked to what's happened to them in the past. Some of it is just they're really unwell. <laughs> and that's what and it's just our normal call, a normal call out for us, except for rather than it's just the location that's different. They're not in a family home. They're in a in a home which is caring for them yeah support workers like yourselves so yeah so yeah it is a range it is a range but yeah i think there um there are some i I, I know of one recently of psychosis that that was uh, probably due to christmas which my friend went to different ambulance service different area but yeah if that helps and I, I suppose you, you mentioned psychosis there, Tim. Um, yeah. Which which makes me think where a lot of children we look after self medicate with cannabis. Yeah. To okay. deal with their trauma, and then which then can then lead to cannabis induced psychosis. Yeah. Which yeah. is quite common actually in our sector, and I know that cams have have to work with a lot of children who are experiencing cannabis induced psychosis j- just from feedback I've had. Um, in some services in the recent years, so yeah, yeah that's I something. Would, I, yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that. That's no, really interesting. That's a learning point for me. I wouldn't have even considered cannabis as high usage in your area. That's really interesting. Yeah, especially Thank because, you, like yeah. I say, to help with with dealing with the trauma, it's, it's often a form of self medication for a lot of kids, whether they recognise it or not. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Definitely when, when we think of, you know, the rise in things like edibles as well, where cannabis is available in such more other attractive forms. And, and you know, let's be honest, Stronger edibles forms. are, the way they're packaged sometimes is very much directed towards children, which is disgusting in itself, isn't it? But the way they're sometimes packaged and made to look very attractive, light sweets, um, is, is going to increase the, yeah, the uh, the attractiveness to, to children, um, making it, you know, packaged like it's some novelty item. Um, so, yeah, and then the risk with edibles is it takes longer then for the effects to um, to kick in sometimes until they've been digested. So people can actually consume more than their tolerance levels, which, which could then cause them to, uh, to need intervention. I do you know what it's making me think I'm going back to now what 20 probably 2013 2014 when herbal highs were huge in children's homes all the children's homes I was working in herbal highs was a thing they were going up because they weren't illegal were they? The, that, no, that things was, like spice. Yeah, exactly. Remember. And I remember two children in particular coming back, two teenage boys, and they were absolutely gone, completely enough. They had no idea what they were doing. And like it, it, that was a time again where, uh, blimey, yeah. Did we call the paramedics? I think we did, but I know we certainly um, tried to get support on it. And actually, it was quite tricky to get support on. I've worked with children where I really struggled to get support with psychosis because they were children. And it was like, yeah. and I couldn't find a child's service for psychosis in this certain area. Now, you went one county out, we could get support. And that's what we actually had to do. We had to move the child eventually to get them into another county to get support. I think things are starting to get better. I do think that. And I, everything, right, is about location and resources, isn't it? I mean, you must, you must see that yourself, Tim, probably just from the different boroughs of London, right? Oh, God, yeah. Um, we, I mean, we do our best to standardise care, but... Th- we're very CCG-led and we've got multiple CCGs across London, so you'll get funding for certain referral pathways, sort of elderly fallers, for example, going away from sort of children, but yeah. in, one, in one area. But um, and you get, and then we try, we eventually move it into the other areas, but it can take years to convince CCGs to fund what one's doing. They all have their different priorities in the end. Um, so yeah, we we will always deliver sort of the same sort of critical care and stuff but then often the referral pathways or access into like cams mental health services will be slightly different to part of area area of london just but just because of funding yeah funds what really yeah we we have the same issue do you know what i i was thinking about like with this is there's so much learning here to collaborate um the paramedic service the healthcare with social care isn't there because the one thing that all our children would absolutely have in some form or another is trauma. There'll be a loss, there'll be a bereavement. It, may, it might just be the loss of not being with their families anymore because essentially they're all living in a children's home. So that's one thing that they all have in common is the trauma side of it. But you mentioned that that might not necessarily be an area that you guys fully know about. Of course, you've got your own learnings from it and things, but if you're not being taught about it to the extent that a lot well we should be as children's homes it should be always be our number one focus because it's some there's always other things on top but that would 
is there need to be more trauma development in the healthcare system for other people? Because I see it with the police sometimes how they respond to the children. And I'm like, oh gosh, you talked about how you take the lead for children's homes. Um, but it's not necessarily, you know, and children's homes call the police in because it's a power thing, it's a control versus actually let's look at the child in this, how they're going to respond to it. And you get amazing police officers and you do that come in and fantastic with the kids. And like anyone and any profession, you also get the ones where you're like, oh gosh, this isn't quite right because they don't understand trauma and they don't know how it works. So they just see the behaviour, which is what a lot of people do, even in our own industry. Do you, do you think that's something that needs to be developed in the healthcare system oh absolutely i think it's fundamentally key for us to need to know to understand our patients and understand how our impact on patients past and present and then how to just communicate with them i think um paramedics will always be luckier because we're always seeing over the police is um that caring professional people yeah. forget about the police are actually really caring yeah. and yeah. actually just want to help but against a barrier the uniform for the police they're coming and there'll be a barrier there but absolutely i mean i, I love continue, we do a lot of cpd um and it's something that i coming away from this is I'd, I'd love to take forward a lot of my staff is just let them learn a little bit more about about it and get that greater understanding um they're, they're wonderful people but they're, they're constantly learning my stuff and this could be one of those areas which they need to develop more um I'm, i think we're lucky in the amnesty service that we always see unwell children as really high priority in our minds when we go and see them as paramedics yeah yeah, yeah. you know when we, we it's it, it's emotive we we understand there's some it's it's very unusual for a child to be in care so we'll understand that when we go yeah. but yeah we definitely would need that that additional training and understanding would be amazing yeah well and just help help us provide better care you know which is what we all want in the end isn't it absolutely we just want the best for every the child and ourselves we want the best for both we want to, to go home knowing that we've done everything we possibly can yeah absolutely to make someone's life better yeah. and if it if it helps you i know of a podcast that you can use with your um students <laughs> <laughs> Um, Stu, have, you, have you got a question for Tim? Um, I I do, but I just want to go on to the, the this point that we were just discussing. I think I think the thing for me is we you know if we if we if children who are looked after is potentially be going to, going to become a protected status, as in same as gender, sexuality, and those you know different areas which I can't think of them all. I think we do have a duty to kind of think about how we how we do educate people. So, you know, in this, I'm thinking that, you know, it would be good to kind of offer training towards, you know, the police, to, to the paramedics, to, to also the fire service and, and emergency services that are coming into homes to kind of, you know, let them understand what, what, what to expect. So it could be the case that, because what... Another thing I was thinking was it's not just the child that's receiving the medical attention that you need to focus on because the side the the blue lights may trigger the other children as well. So it's about knowing those type of things for for us and for each other to to protect everybody. So so you know I think there's potential for some you know for us to take this to a little bit further and offer offer some sort of training, but. As we were talking about um, a lot of the tra a lot of traumatic events that that 
you've experienced within your in your profession. What I was interested to to learn is, you know, um, if we if we deal with incidents, we will talk to each other, we will debrief, we may even use, you know, um, clinical supervision or or things like that. What support is available to you in in your role to kind of to debrief and and help you with, you know, the trauma that you face every, every yeah. second of your working day. Um, first and foremost, obviously peer support, like anybody. Um, formally, we we send to really traumatic incidents. You'll get a lot of managers. You'll get someone like myself. You'll get instant officers. You'll get advanced clinicians. Um, we always try and do a, a hot debrief afterwards. Um, there are benefits and to sort debriefs and there are obviously disadvantages to them because you know obviously they don't sometimes people are too adrenalized to actually understand what's happened and and process it um so i'm not a fan of them in every instant but we try and do it we don't have the time for cold debriefs later down the line we'd love to do that but we don't have it but in terms so we we as a manager I'll, i'll speak to my team's personally about it afterwards we're getting we're getting a lot more sort of access to counseling services we have trim referrals which we can do so the trauma risk um referrals which are great we've we've got some fantastic people who work with the ambulance service like that who 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 will um deal with them and we've got a few specialized sort of trauma psychotherapists i think they're called sorry i'm not pretty good no, with the terminology no, 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 who, yeah. are, um, who are fantastic um who who are just amazing people um but yeah we again we need to get better at it um but sometimes some you have to know your staff you have to know yourself as well which is we've got a very young workforce so it's very difficult and sometimes to want to recognize when an incident's happening having said that i think now like we were talking about earlier about mental health and younger people are more willing to talk about it Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think it's get, we can recognise it a little bit easier, but we're nowhere near where I think I'd like to be or we'd want to be across the UK and in, in, in the NHS in any field, really. But, yeah, we, we do – we try and send as much support as we possibly can um, to support the staff once they've been to these incidents. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. It's interesting, isn't it? Because where my brain's going with it, it clearly it's two very different um, industries, but we have got so many similarities between us because yeah. I'm thinking every day you're essentially in crisis. Most days as a paramedic, you're going to be, that's what you're doing. You're dealing with crisis. And I also know that in children's homes, it can feel exactly the same. Every day you feel like you're in crisis. I always call it hurricane trauma is going through the home, not the trauma from the kids the trauma from the staff, the, the bouncing back and forward between each other. Um, and sometimes you can't see the woods for the trees. And we also have to get so much better on um, our debriefs because I think sometimes they become a bit of a tick box and they're not necessarily yes. used to the level that they should be used. And it's like you said, Tim, it's the same kind of concept. It's finding the time to do it. The things that we are governed by is our regulations and our legislations and in our children children's home regs it is we have to do debriefs and we have to have that evidenced and if we don't have that evidence in for impacts the Ofsted outcomes for children's homes I personally see that as a really good thing um, because I think we need to be regulated to make sure these things are happening but they're not in a tick spot a tick box way 
We've also got something very similar to you as in a lot of our staff, I think, is a lot younger. When I go and deliver training, and I know you as well, Ian, and for, and for you, Stu, as well, like, it's a rarity to see anyone that's been in the job longer than two years. And like, and actually, I see a bit of a gap. I either see people less than two years or I see people over 10 years. And I normally high five the people over 10 years. I'm like, we did it <laughs> because it's so rare. And it's because exactly what you said, you've got to know yourself to be able to know how you manage after all these tricky situations. I mean, Ian, what's your view on this? What are you thinking? Um, Definitely with what Tim was just talking about with the young workforce in paramedics. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who works in the local ITU and, and it's very much the same in our local trust that, that the paramedic workforce in our local area is, is very young. And, and absolutely, I know I do come across a similar pattern where staff have either been doing the job for a very short time um, and I'm very fortunate that I train some excellent services as well and the staff retention is really good. Yeah. And some of those staff ha- have been there for many, many years or they've worked within that company for for many years. But, yeah, there's, there is that massive gap sometimes, isn't there? Yeah. With very, very fresh staff and, and very new to the role. Um, also, it got me thinking about something else. Tim said earlier that kids will be ill sometimes. And I think we always, you know, we've talked about before in terms of behaviours that sometimes kids will be kids in terms of behaviours. The, the more we're talking about mental health has many, many positives, but actually there's consequences to talking about mental health. Mm. And and sometimes that we can over-pathologise everything, we can overthink. Yep. And the same way when kids are ill, sometimes we, we can over-analyse that. We're actually, they've just had an unfortunate run. You know, they've, they've caught a lot of bugs in a short space of time. Um, so I think we, we do have to have that balance, sort of that balancing factor sometimes because we can overanalyse things and, and link everything to trauma. And I suppose that the risk is where we, you know, the more we're talking about mental health, as I said, I think it's, it's great that we're talking about a lot of things. However, sometimes clinical language can start to become normalised and, people overuse it in day-to-day and people overuse um, saying they've got certain conditions. Yeah. Like, I'm so OCD. Yeah. When actually they're, they're just particular about doing things a certain way. Yeah. Because that's important to them. There's a massive difference there, isn't there? And, you know, and, and definitely other conditions people will say, you know, I've got ADHD, when actually they might be quite stressed at that moment in time, which is increasing their inattentiveness because their their mind's elsewhere. So I think we, we've got to remember that, yeah, talking about things is great and what raising awareness is great, but there's also consequences to raising awareness is that we can overuse that awareness sometimes and not actually analyse the situation fully. Yeah. And that's where our reflective practice comes into play sometimes and taking that step back to to look at the bigger picture. Um, and Gabor Mate um, put it fantastically once. He said, the danger is when we become specialists in any field, we develop that tunnel vision and we lose that holistic way of thinking. And and I think it's a wonderful and a very humbling analogy for all of us sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, really refreshing to, to hear Tim's views today and definitely expanded our views on a lot of things and, and hopefully you know that's reciprocated as well there is so much to think about isn't there yeah and I've, I've you know while we've been talking today i've reflected on a few 
Mm. Other incidents where paramedics have come out and they've had some excellent conversations with the kids. Mm. Some of them might have shared a few personal lived experiences, not gone into detail, but they've been able to relate to the children and, and police as well, you know, where I don't think paramed- paramedics get enough credit. I agree. They have to hit the ground running all the time. The police don't get enough credit. Yep. We only ever hear on the news the worst cases of people who've abused their positions of trust. Often, like we do in our sector, mm. you only hear about that that member staff who slipped through the nets mm-hmm. and gone past the safer recruitment barriers. Mm-hmm. You never hear a success story, which is such a shame, isn't it? Because, yeah, I think, you know, I would like to, to say that, you know, hats off to, to some of the excellent support I've seen over the years from, from professionals. What this to me just highlights is the importance of multi-agency working and like how we're all seeing that there's a gap and there needs to be more of a collaboration to help each other be able to do it. Like when you yeah. do come to the children's home, like you said, Tim, that like we know how to best support you. And also, you know, to, outside of the children's home, how also we can best support you. It goes vice versa. Um, and we're all in professionals, but ultimately we're also humans <laughs> and we're all also empathic. That's why we do what we do and we want to be able to help people. And it's why these discussions are so important. And I think it's it's a good thing that we're all be, being able to reflect on. And I think, Stu, you probably got a, a, a one last comment that you want to say before we leave it for the for the rest of the podcast. Yeah, did Gabor Mate play for Portugal? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> nice try, Stu. <laughs> oh, no, so. Thanks, Hannah. I don't know what you want me to say. Um, no, I, what I want to say before we, we close, we know the last few years has been quite difficult for every profession and none more so than the NHS. And I think it would be remiss and foolish of us to not, to not say thank you very much for everything you've done for us over the, the last few years. Um, and please pass that on to you and your colleagues also. I just want to say thank you ever so much, Tim, for taking the time to come and speak with us. Um, wherever we can help, we want to help. And like Stu said, thanks so much. And I hope this has been helpful for people listening. Take care, everybody, and speak to you soon. Thank you. Thanks. Adios.